Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 121 of the Becoming Human podcast. This is part four in the Dallas Cloakey series, which is a study and observation on someone who was prolific in many different ways. He was a prolific climber, an avid runner who's hosted a variety of running events in the Pacific Northwest and a PE teacher. He really stood behind his his religion and his community um, and he was an engaged and thoughtful father. And as a father myself and an adventurer with the call to the mountains, it's wonderful to be able to listen to how somebody spent decades and decades working out how to balance all of these things that are important to him, such as Dallas. And it's been a blast so far to listen to his close climbing partners, um, perspectives on him and what they what they learn from him and what their adventures would like and i'm really excited with this one featuring chris widener because chris met dallas looking up to him as a friend a climbing partner um and at some point almost like a father dallas would push Chris his interest in writing about his trips. And over time that would expand into Chris being published in a few notable um, climbing and mainstream magazines. And over time, as Chris's climbing ability grew, he was helping Dallas push his own abilities. And he had something to teach Dallas before Dallas passed whether it was placing um, the newer traditional gear or how to climb these, you know, harder sport routes, <laughs> man. And it's wild to listen to the dynamics and the relationship that grew over time. Because when you're like in an Alpine environment with very uh, real risks and the relationship to the size of your imagined risk to the reality of it is often is often very large. Like it feels like a very frightening thing. Like if there's anything that I can compare to going out and fighting a dragon, like you would read in some fantasy book, I think climbing, specifically alpine climbing, would be the closest thing to that because all of the risks feel real. And that creates this dynamic with like, with time, with life and the people around you that I've never really experienced before. Oh, it was rad to listen to a multi-year relationship that was built around these experiences, these adventures. Without any further ado, here's Chris. I met Dallas in 1991. It was October. And um, he had just kind of cold called me. Um, he found me through this directory, this Christian directory, actually, of climbers called Solid Rock. And they had this, um, you know, this kind of listing of, of local climbers who were um, who were Christians at the time for me. And, uh, anyway, he found me and just called me out of the blue. I was 17 and he was 52 years old. And, 
um, just asked if I wanted to go climbing in the mountains. And I was psyched <laughs> because I just wanted climbing partners, you know? Yeah, that's cool. How were you exposed to climbing? I started climbing actually at Camp Norwester up on, uh, used to be on Lopez Island. Mm -hmm. I was um, 14 years old, actually 13 and 14. I went to summer camp there and, um, you know, along with like all the regular camp activities, they also had rock climbing because there was this 60 foot tall cliff that was just on the camp property. And so they had rock climbing and they also had um, a, an option for a trip to go climb Mount Baker, which was limited to something like 10 campers. And so um, I somehow got onto that trip. It sounded awesome. And so I got a chance to attempt Mount Baker. We didn't summit my first year. Um, but but uh, yeah, it was awesome. I got exposed to rock climbing as well as alpine climbing. That's such a wild experience. It was great. It was life changing. It's cool that there that there was like that opportunity for for you to be exposed to that. I've come in from like northern Idaho where you you have a lot of like the wilderness, but you don't have those like opportunities as of yet anyways that yeah. are being matched with that. Um but you out here like I see all of these different programs and it's cool like what kids are exposed to and how they know that they can like engage with, you know, um the wilderness and other things, you know, even science and arts and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I mean, now looking back, it's like, wow, starting climbing at 13 is, yeah. it's a little bit late now. I mean, I, you know, now looking back, like, Ooh, I wish I had started when I was four, like all these, um, kids who are prospective, uh, Olympians, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I, I do feel lucky. I mean, at the time in 1988, I, I feel like that was starting early. And so I, I feel super lucky. And so was that like a common thing for people, at least at the time to like find each other through this network of, of Christians? Like, were there a lot of Christians out there rock climbing? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there weren't. Um, you know, I, Christianity for me was, was a long and important phase in my life. But, um, just to be clear, like I, I no longer consider myself a Christian, but yeah, at the time, solid rock climbers for Christ, which I think still exists, um, in fact, I'm sure it does. I know it does. Um, it had this, this kind of a, a small directory, but I wanted to be a part of it at the time. And, um, yeah, there, there were only so many people. So I'm sure that's why Dallas somehow found my name. Cause I was one of the few in the, in the area that had signed up to be a part of this thing. So, um, so yeah, it was really, uh, fortunate that I got this call from Dallas and, you know, when he described that he'd pick me up in his yellow VW van and I was just like, wow, okay, this sounds kind of weird, but I'm, I'm psyched. Why not? You know, is that the first time that you met him? It is. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And you don't have any way of like doing research on the person like you would now with like social media <laughs> or anything like that. Like, wow. Yeah. I had never heard of this guy. I think my parents were a little suspect, but, um, <laughs> you know, I was just so excited to to get outside. I climbed at the gym after I got back from Kentner Wester. I signed up at the Vertical Club, which was the first climbing gym in, in America. And I started going indoors. And then on sunny days, I would just go out to the University of Washington Rock. Yeah. Uh, that's on campus, you know. You've probably maybe been there. Yeah, I took my son out there and, and played around. It's fun. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's awesome. And it was built in the 70s, kind of ahead of its time. And uh, wow. anyway... 
it was rare for me to even consider having a chance to climb outdoors because I didn't really have much other than a harness, shoes, and a chalk bag. So mm-hmm. I could just go out climbing. So yeah, it was it was awesome. I was like, yeah, man, let's do this. <laughs> wow. So in from from there on out, like was he the one who introduced you into into climbing, and did you go on more trips with him, like pretty quickly after there? Yeah. So, um, so you know, I was introduced to all of that stuff at Camp Norwester, but I feel like Dallas um, was the one who really drew me in, and he taught me more than. Uh, anybody in the world about climbing and about the mountains. And it was October. We went up to Washington Pass and climbed both North Early Winter Spire and South Early Winter Spire, which to me were mind blowing. And, um, and, you know, I think it was um, the next time we climbed together, I think was in February, which felt like way too long for me because after that, (laughs) Like, ooh, I just got this taste of the Cascades and of what it's like to climb with someone so knowledgeable. I wanted to go again right away. But, of course, Northwest winters were kind of not awesome all the time. But we hooked up with Mark Devoin, actually, who you already interviewed for your podcast, um, for an ascent of McClellan Butte, this north gully on McClellan Butte, which is right off of I-90 in, in February. And another mind-blowing climb. I was just totally psyched. And, um, after that, I think things, um, snowballed in in a way (laughs) and, and we just started climbing together a bunch. So in, when you were going on those like two initial climbs, um, was it like an active, like teaching relationship that he had with you? Like, what does that look like? Um, you know, it, it wasn't really because I did know enough that I feel like he didn't have to, um, jump in and, and kind of tell me everything. In fact, I, you know, I did some leading on these climbs and things, but he was well aware. I think it was apparent that like, I wasn't as comfortable, nearly as comfortable as he was. Um, and so I, he was really gentle with me. I mean, he kind of gave me pointers when he felt like I needed them, but he in no way was overbearing or, uh, or anything like that. But over time, I kind of, just really appreciated this role as his student. And I think he, um, he knew what he had to offer and he would share those things, but he didn't go too far with it. Oh, that's really cool. He's from the, everybody from like everyone else that I talked to seemed very measured in, in his approach. And like, even in his uh, interactions with people all the way down to like the cool prizes that he gave would give away for like the, you know, the, what, like best climbs of the year or something like that, or best stories. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was always uh, just coming up with ways to make it fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and yet, like you said at first, he was he was pretty reserved in a lot of ways. And um, you know, I remember Mark in your in your podcast saying how Dallas didn't smile that often, and mm-hmm. and that is definitely something that, like, as soon as he said that, I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Because I have all of these photos of me and Dallas together. And he's always kind of scowling, you know, so, uh, and that kind of hints at his more reserved attitude. I think, um, he, he definitely didn't want to come across as, as a, as a bossy kind of guy. And he didn't, um, in fact, I recall a lot of times where I had to be like, Hey Dallas, you know, what do you think about this? Do you think, 
um, you know, should I lead this pitch? And he would, he would sometimes just kind of relinquish a lead to me. Um, and especially later on in our, in our, um, climbing partnership. But sometimes I would have to ask like, Hey, in the mountains, like, you know, which way do you think we should go? And, um, you know, so he wasn't the one just, just coming across as like, okay, this is what you do. This is how you do it. It was, it was really, um, uh, fluid and, and really open. It's and you're put in such a interesting, like leadership role or just dynamic with your partner. If, especially when they have like less experience than you and you are encouraging them to lead or like discouraging the situation where it's like, I'll rope gun all the pitches. And uh-huh. like, I know like, cause there's points where your partner might be a little bit um, nervous or uncertain. And there's like part of you that's like, you can enable that if that's what they need or, or how you feel, or you can encourage them otherwise. And like that, that dynamic that you have between partners is, is really interesting. And I would wonder, like, not to get dramatic about it, I suppose, but like, there's a lot of like personal growth elements there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I don't think that's dramatic in any way. I mean, there's no doubt that with uh, Dallas and just during that time in my life, starting at 17 years old, I mean, there was a ton of personal growth that happened. And for me, the time that I spent climbing with Dallas, um, I valued so much more than I valued most of the time. Like for much of our climbing career, well, maybe a third of it, I was going to the university of Washington as a student. And for most of that time, I didn't really want to be there. I wanted to be out in the mountains. I wanted to be at Smith rocks for climbing. I wanted to be, you know, peak bagging with Dallas and the Canadian Rockies. Um, so, so yeah, it, it was, undoubtedly it was a, a period of very important, um, growth, personal growth. And it's interesting that when I heard people talk about like when he'd gift the, the, them fathers, like children's books. Okay. And it's just like, kind of like way out of like, you know, like left wing, very surprising, but like, you know, he appears he's like very, you know, stoic, but yeah, also very compassionate. Right. Did you get that sense from him? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned in his writing that he came across that way because I feel the same way. Um, I got into writing because of Dallas, um, in large part. And it was funny because, um, we would have some experiences, do some climbs and I would feel very kind of, uh, deeply that these were profound Alpine climbing experiences, especially some of my first, um, you know, whether it was my first, you know, ice leading up on the North face of Mount Shuxon or whether it was, uh, you know, my first peak in the Canadian Rockies with Dallas or my first, first descent that I did with Dallas, those kinds of things. But I wouldn't know that it affected Dallas in any kind of important way until he would write about it. And he would, he would admit these, you know, pretty honest, um, and, and surprisingly emotional things in his writing. Um, he would often just like publish articles for this little magazine called pack and paddle that used to exist. And uh, a couple, yeah, pack and paddle. And a couple of times we co-authored some articles, but, um, it was only in his writing, um, when he really came across as, as emotional and, and fatherly to me, you know? And that, that's really interesting, especially when like, you know, you, 
what I get from other people when you're spending all these times climbing, like I can't help but talking my ass off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and to, like to hear the the contrary, it's just it's really cool to to learn that someone was able to like express themselves really powerfully in their own way. You know? Yeah. And despite like because despite how their representation is in the moment, in some way they're able to connect with each other on like a deep emotional way. You know, despite like whatever your tendencies are, you know, because I always feel reserved myself sometimes, but like through writing and other like very intentional and thoughtful forms of expression, I feel like I like try to connect with people and just hearing stories of them like that. And and even yourself is, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that he didn't express any emotion in person. I mean, certainly we had actually many, deep and important discussions, you know, especially if we were say bivying below an alpine climb and we would have those few hours before dark where we would, um, just kind of sit around and, and talk and, and, and eat or something. And, or sometimes post climb, we'd have a beer, which he would rarely do really. But, but sometimes now and then after a big climb, he would have a beer with me. And, um, and those times, yeah, we would we would talk, and I would know that this feeling of um, really of of love was mutual. Um, we really cared about each other that way, and um, and it did come across in person now and then. Oh, that's so cool! Yeah. Um, what was one one of your mem- most memorable climbs with Dallas? Um. Whew. I mean, there are a lot of them. Uh, I'll pick, um, just for, for the heck of it, I'll, I'll say the, the price glacier of Mount Shuxton was, was a memorable one. Um, that was relatively early on for me. That was in, I think, 1993. And we had only been climbing together for a couple of years. And that was also with Mark DeBoyne. And, um, what really sticks out about that with me was, first of all, it was in one of the most remote parts of the North Cascades, certainly one of the most remote places I had ever been. Um, and so the approach was kind of grueling and long and the whole thing just had this, it's kind of a serious aura about it. Um, and during that climb and then a bunch of others, uh, after that, you know, I really did realize that I looked to Dallas for direction and, and kind of, you know, for safety. Cause I was kind of gripped. I mean, it's, scary being that isolated, um, especially with relatively little experience on that kind of terrain. Um, and so to me, it was really cool that the, the next morning we woke up before sunrise, we started climbing up and the Price Glacier involves a lot of kind of weaving in and out of crevasses. And um, there were short steps of vertical ice climbing separated by some kind of ledges. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a serious and, and big alpine route. Um, and Dallas just kind of put me in the lead for the entire climb. And I remember thinking, wow, this is kind of strange because Dallas and Mark both are so much more experienced than I am yet for some reason, Dallas kind of put me in the lead. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I guess, I guess I'll do it, you know? And so I led the whole route. Um, a lot of stuff, which I mean, in retrospect, it was, three people simul climbing, you know, no micro tractions or, or anything like that back in that day. And oh, so, wow. so, you know, it was, you got to be careful. And, um, we were trusting each other wholeheartedly. And, um, 
and I just remember that feeling of topping out on the Price Glacier and then enjoying the flat walk to the final summit pyramid, the class three to the summit of Shuxin, which is this beautiful, beautiful mountain, as you know. And uh, it really just had so much meaning for me. It, it kind of, it hooked me to the point where all I could think about was, you know, what's the next peak I can climb at Dallas? Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I cherish that. And just to put yourself through that, because like, relatively speaking, there is no higher, like higher stake than do, trying to do your best and having people's lives in your hands, right? And I know it's like a voluntary thing, but like just putting yourself in that experience, it's like the closest you're going to get, right? In a, a recreational sense. And being put there though, like, those experiences are as like deep as they're going to get. And it's, yeah. it's yeah. wild that you got to do that with people who are your, your mentors and like grow through like your young adulthood in that way. And to have people there for you and like entrusting you with that. Yeah. Yeah, very much. I mean, I, I, I felt really lucky and, and I cherish every climb, you know, with Dallas and with Mark for that matter. I mean, Mark, I was a, was a partner for much of that. And, um, and I certainly looked up to him as well. Um, and he had a different style than Dallas, you know, he was willing to open up a bit more just on the spot. He was, you know, kind of more talkative, a little more openly sensitive. Um, and, you know, maybe not quite as, but pretty much just as knowledgeable as Dallas. In fact, I know for sure that Dallas would often have Mark lead things when, when it got, you know, pretty hard as well. So, and Mark so, did sound, sound like he had times where he's like climbing things and then ah, it didn't seem that bad. And then someone made a remark and he just like raised his eyebrows because it's like, oh, look, that might have been pretty bad. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, did some crazy yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, yeah. A, from your perspective, did, did they come off as what they were professionally as like teachers? Like, did they have like the, the, aura of of people who just enjoyed teaching because they did that professionally and i find that interesting like it's almost like uh dallas where at some points i know he's like trying to find climbing partners that'll you know keep up with his like his schedule because it's hard to find one person to fit all of your scheduling needs right but at the same time i feel like he would probably sacrifice some things to bring newer people on and that sacrifice would reflect like a value in exposing people to something, right? Like I've had times where I bring a bunch of people and I'm like, I'll teach you how to outdoor climb. Like we'll go climb outdoors. And it's like, I'm not only going to get like, well, like climb probably three or six times today, but all these people get to have fun. And that, that sounds cool to me. You yeah. know? And did that reflect it? Was that reflected in, in Dallas and Mark when you met them? Well, like, you know, the, the fact that they were teachers, is that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. And that they kind of gave off like that, like they gravitated towards a teaching role and like they, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that was your relationship to them or was it more like, like friend to friend? You know, it, it was definitely more friend to friend. I, I think, I mean, my impression, if I just had to kind of offer an opinion was just that they, they taught, they loved their jobs. At least I know Dallas definitely loved his job. I'm pretty sure Mark loved his job um, as much as far as jobs go. And um, 
but I think for them climbing was like, okay, leaving that behind, we're going climbing. So, so no, I don't think they brought that, um, that teaching vibe with them. I, I think climbing was kind of their, their escape and their passion. See, I've talked to people in, who've been doing like exploring these interests a lot longer than I have. And it's interesting when some people either like take what they do professionally and mingle it in with what they're doing recreationally, I suppose. And then other people who segregate it. And like Dallas is fascinating because this dude like spent all this time doing things that, you know, I think are really cool and other things, you know, that are a little different than me. And just to be able to like look at that and, you know, enjoy what that what that was like and like learning about that and thinking about it in my own perspective, you know, as like a, a father and someone who's, you know, likes to run and likes to climb and yeah. And also like, you know, and just how, what ways, how that played out for him. It's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, um, so did you guys do a lot of like, uh, was there any like sport climbing that you guys would do or was it mainly peak bagging? It was mainly um, peak bagging and, and climbing some big routes, but but I I got Dallas to come down to Smith Rock a few times, and um, so we did some sport climbing there. We did some sport climbing in between Alpine climbs and the Canadian Rockies. I remember we went to two or three different sport crags. Um, yeah, we had some definitely some sport climbing mixed in, and you know his his goal was you know kept kind of getting greater every year. I mean, in, into his sixties, he was still like, okay, now I want to do 10 B. Now I want to do 10 C. Now I want to push it even harder. And, uh, up in Mount Erie, of course we climbed together in Mount Erie a bunch. And some of that was bouldering. Some was trad climbing. Some was sport climbing. Wow. Yeah, it was great. It was fun. And like, that's pretty far into, uh, into his age, right. And the time he spent climbing, it's yeah. so he was like constantly just getting after it didn't seem to tire really quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> it reminds me of like, uh, like Brian Bordeaux for one example, like chasing five fourteens in the sixties. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, Brian's a great guy. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with Brian, um, back when I lived in Seattle he, nothing but respect for Brian Bordeaux. He's a great guy, a visionary climber. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> It's just really interesting to me when like someone like Brian and like Dallas like takes um, a particular area like Mount Erie for you know for Dallas and Rags and um, or like Mazama for um, Brian where they spend all this time you know developing these routes and when you develop those routes you start you know pulling in people to that area and you you create an environment and a culture based around that yes and. Like me, as I've gotten into climbing, that's been the first place that I'd go to would be Mount Erie. And that's where I, I had like my introduction and I went up to South Early Winter Spire for my first trad course. And I got hooked in because nice. that was like the most like what you were saying, like going up there and, and seeing those spires are so different from everything that I've seen before in the wilderness. And it was striking to be able to go up there. And I just fell in love to wanted to climb and summit those peaks and explore, yeah. them, you know. Yeah. And th then in, like when I'm climbing over it and a court or on Erie, I realized that like a lot of these routes are set by one or yeah. consistently one person with all these other people. And 
it's just wild because without him, obviously someone would probably find it and create the routes, but without that determination and, um, and that love for it, like, yeah, things wouldn't be what they are. Yeah, I agree. It seems like very unique to Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he just kind of had to get his fix. Like Mount Erie was so close to his house that he could bike up there Occasionally he ran from his house up there. He would usually drive, but um, yeah, he could, with a few hours off, he could race up there, you know, put in some work on a new route, do some laps on old routes, do some bouldering, whatever it was. And uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Like he just really owned what was available to him and and did a great job with it. Yeah. Uh, How did yours and Dallas's relationship evolve over time? Because it seemed like when he started off, it was really that friendly and then kind of almost like a paternal relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there was definitely that element to it. Um, as the years went by, we, we climbed for um, for about 15 years plus, like from 1991 through about 2004 is when we did some climbing. And um, yeah, during that time, you know, slowly as we spent more time climbing together, um, I kind of felt like this was, uh, in a way, primarily it was a, it was a climbing partnership, but secondarily kind of a father son type deal in a way. I mean, I, I think, I don't think we ever voiced that to each other, but I think we both felt that, um, especially as in my childhood, there was some, Gosh, I don't even know how to describe it succinctly, but uh, there was just some distance for between me and my father at, at that time, and I felt like Dallas was was really filling that role in some ways. But then it also evolved in that um, kind of in the later years, late '90s, early 2000s. Um, I remember, uh, you know, Dallas was was actually thanking me for climbing him just because, um, you know, I ended up you know, getting super into climbing and I, and I started climbing harder grades and I did a lot of, um, Alpine climbing for a while as well. And so anyway, he started feeling like, like I was kind of the one pushing the climbing and he was kind of trying to keep up with me, which, um, I always find kind of funny because I'll never think of Dallas as anything but this mentor to me and this father to me. But, um, but yeah, and especially in terms of rock climbing or, or, you know, rock pitches in the mountains. I mean, I eventually got to a point where I was, um, you know, I just felt more confident than he did. And so I would take those hard pitches. Um, so it did evolve in that way. Um, oh. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. It's, it's something that you run into in like martial arts and in jujitsu is a big thing when people get um, like there's for the whole belt system. It's like white, blue. Uh, purple brown and black and to get a blue belt takes like two years um by the time hold on one second i love you too buddy um (laughs) by the time that you get a uh, blue belt oftentimes people will only want to train with blue belts or higher because the white belts are brand new they might not be consistent it's not worth investing your time in um but there's this like this like thing that's really important is that you have to it's you have to teach people who are new 
And even though you might not be able to get everything you can out of it, like you're not able to work all of your moves because they're not giving you the right reactions um, because they don't know what to do. Um, in the end, you're training these partners and some of them are going to stick around and some of them are going to push you to be better because you need other people to be better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it definitely became um, really fun kind of in our later years, like being able to put up top ropes that Dallas would, um, that would push Dallas, you know? I mean, he would struggle sometimes. Um, but I mean, what I always thought was so cool is, is here's this, here's this dude who's in his sixties by now and he's still really wanting to improve as a climber. He still had that curiosity, like, you know, should I get a different pair of shoes? Will that help me get, get stronger? You know, should I use this fingerboard? Should I, you know, he, he was asking me for advice on how to get better at rock climbing, which, um, you know, was, was awesome. And, and I just see in many, many just older people in general don't, have or they lose that curiosity in a sport that they're so experienced in um or or anything that they're experienced in but dallas always had that um willingness to adapt um to to the new stuff to a point i mean he, he yeah. was definitely old and crotchety in some ways for <laughs> sure but but he definitely had that spark of curiosity that kind of kept pushing him forward in terms of the gear he used and and even more so in terms of of kind of the level that he got to in rock climbing. So I thought that was awesome. That yeah. is awesome. Especially, you know, what, at the time he was like 50 some odd years into rock climbing and to be able to have an open mind like that. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. Even to stay in the sport. Cause I, in different kinds of sports, I'd see people like have a retirement age and right. that's like, he was still going strong. You know, and, and Fred Becky was too. And it's like that kind of mentality is, is awesome. And, um, and that kind of passion, you know? Yeah. 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 Did he ever talk about like his, what drew him to the mountains or talk about like his, um, his interest and passion? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked about stuff a lot that kind of alluded to those subjects. Um, yeah, I mean, I know he, so he was definitely um, like on the surface anyway. So he was a list guy. Mm -hmm. He had, he had these lists of peaks. He would, he would handwrite letters to me with, Hey, here's some ideas for the fall. Um, here's some great things we could possibly do in the summer. And, you know, so he had these lists. And so I know his, the way he thought about the mountains and about, his accomplishments and his climbs um, kind of lended itself toward um, taking things off. And he would always say, you know, peak bagging, that kind of thing. So he certainly that, you know, that list driven numbers driven idea definitely was one thing about the mountains, but um, certainly the, the deeper part of that whole thing is I think one, he felt closer to God when he was in the mountains, when he was in nature and seeing all these beautiful things, I felt like that really was an expression for him of his spirituality. Um, he never said that I'm guessing there, but that's my best guess. And I also think, um, that he just, he appreciated the relationships he had with his partners. Um, 
you know, which, which ultimately is actually why I climb as well. Really. It's like, you know, I don't know any other way in my life to, to become that close with people and to be in situations where you really deeply trust that person with your life. And I'm certain that that was a motivator for Dallas as well. Um, but certainly like the days where he would just like, he w- he'd want to get his peak total up for the year. You know, that was a big thing for him, which is, oh, <laughs> so funny. I loved it. You know, he would want to go and bag some peaks. And I'm sure that often there wasn't that much more to it than, Hey, I want to bag at least a few more peaks this month, or I want to get some exercise and Hey, do you want to come with me? Or I'll go do it by myself in Mount Erie. So certainly there's that as well. Did you, did, so he kept a running peak total for every month or every year? Yeah. Yeah. He would always <laughs> have a peak total for the year. Like, I mean, there were the, his years of, of, um, of marathons and, and ultra marathons where he didn't bag that many peaks at all. But most of his life, I mean, he, he would climb a staggering number of peaks, you know, to the point where he didn't care if he'd climbed the peak five times before. It was a convenient mountain he could climb in inclement weather and so he would go do the peak so he could get his peak total up (laughs) (laughs) i know how that is like i'll have um is it this app like like relive and there's other apps like that where they'll map your gps uh, Uh over like the 3d um satellite view of your area so i'll go on these like long runs and specifically the high routes are better because i really like it when the line like bounces up and down and I look at all the mountains that I went over and I'm like, yeah, it's nice. Even no one sees it. It's like yeah. weird self-satisfaction just sets in. Sure. And so there's something that I've been trying to reconcile. And through my experience with like rock climbing and doing martial arts and for jujitsu specifically where, you know, you can go 100 percent and you'll break, take someone's limb and take it to the uh, very limit of like severe pain or it's going to break and then you tap give up um before any permanent or you know damage is done and like there's a lot of trust that's built there and you have to put it out on on the table you can't really hide because you're so in the moment like that's all that you can do right and with rock climbing like i'm a coward um (laughs) like i have so many moments where it's like i've just you know, back down on things or it was really hard for me and I had people were supporting me and I've supported other people and, um, and also being learning to be, you know, actually confident in myself. Cause like, if you're not confident in like a life or death situation, right. And you're not confident in your ability to, you know, uh, place your trad gear, right. And that you understand placements really well. Like you learn that you have to trust yourself. Right. Yeah. And in those terms, it's easy for me to learn that. But in the terms of everyday life, it's pretty hard because, like, it's not mandatory. Right. And right. my life isn't on the line. And someone else, more important for me, because self-preservation is not the best. But, like, someone else's life isn't on the line. Except when I get on the wall. Like, self-preservation. Yeah. Um, anyway, the relationships that I'd have out of that are deeper than any of the other relationships that I've ever had. Yeah. And I don't know any other like anyone in my whole life all like those relationships they don't seem flat i just feel like i don't really know them in the sense that i know these people that i've done like martial arts with or um in like a very intense way specifically the people that i've been doing it consistently with and climbing as well and then there's this thing that happened when i did the trad climbing where like it's really hard to balance the need to make money because it's all i want to 
like do. And then also like I'm a father and being dedicated to my you know son and trying to give him the life that I that I that I didn't have, and even more than that, just being whatever a good dad is, I guess. Um, but I'm drawn to that. And like, even with martial arts, like when I get really in it, there'd be like peaks where like, oh, I'm really enjoying this. And I'm like, wait, I got to give my time where it's appropriate. Right. Okay. And it's, and it's interesting just how, you know, people deal with it. And like, when you're exposed to it, how much it can like suck you in, like the desire to go climbing, for instance, or the desire to do like martial arts and, and perform at like a high intensity. Have you ever dealt with that? Or did you ever see Dallas deal with that? Um, are you kind of talking about that struggle between just this pure desire to climb and then other life stuff like yeah. his job, family and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I know that he struggled with spending so much time climbing versus family obligations. And I, I don't know, I, I could not tell you what, um, you know, what exactly he was struggling with, but I know that family stuff sometimes weighed on him. And I don't know whether it was him feeling this, you know, feeling torn between climbing and, and the family or whether he purely wanted to climb and he felt like he should spend more time with his family. I don't, I can't tell you what that was. Um, I do know that um, his his older son Steve at at Dallas's memorial service um, expressed this kind of palpable resentment toward toward people like me, toward his climbing partners. Yeah. Uh, not that Steve has something against me yeah. personally, but um, but you know he was like, yeah, you know we. I he he said I was bummed, you know, that my dad would rather spend his time with his climbing partners than he he would with his family. And I can only imagine that if his son was willing to say that at his memorial service, that it was something that in some way must have come up between Dallas and his family at some point. So I can only imagine that that was something that weighed on Dallas. Um, I think his job also, like he, he was a devoted coach, a running coach, uh, track coach, and um, as well as other things uh, as a, you know, elementary school teacher. But um, yeah. I don't think that was as much of a um, conflict as as time with his family was. Mm -hmm. see. You know, because you meet probably know a handful of climbers who deal with probably one or both of those scenarios, right? Whether For it's like the yeah, you know, yeah. Like struggling with the professional life, and I that's see, I get so terrified. I lean the other way though. It's like I work for a school so that I can work the amount of hours that my son's in school and maximize the time with him. And yeah. I know yeah. it's, but it's terrifying the other way when you don't do anything for yourself and you just like, you're only hanging with the kids and there isn't like, even like a, a, a role model outside of that. And that's where I, you know, I struggle with those balances, but once yeah. again, talking and like being honest with where I'm at and where everyone is. Cause I think it's like a, a father or mother, just a parent, right? Like it's a, it's a balance that you struggle with and you fall somewhere in that gray area. Cause like you want to be a parent, but like not in its entirety, not like 24 seven, right? Like you want to do things for yourself. And I think it's like a really uncomfortable thing to talk about. Cause it's like, or at least it is for me anyways. Cause it's like, Oh, I don't like being a parent, but it's, 
it's not that. It's just I I have things that are important to me too. And yeah. then the thing is, is like, do you like do you do you try really hard to offer that to them and allow that to be there, even though you might only be able to engage with it like fifty or maybe twenty percent of your attention on the thing? Because exposing them to it is just taking all you've got, right? Right. And, like, and I've like gone back and forth because I've taken my son out and it's like, he can go out here in a safe place for climbing anyways, you know, go to a safe pad, right? Where there's not a lot of cliffs um, and you're outside for six hours and it's not like, you know, sit outside, I'm gonna go up on the wall and I can't talk to you. It's, I have other adults there and I try to bring other kids and- yeah we have games and there's an adult with the kids and they try to play, they'll offer, you know, structured <laughs> games for the kids like tag, hide and go seek, um, or unstructured stuff, whatever. And there's always an extra rope so the kids can go and climb if they want. And like, you know, I might get, like I said, like 20% of the potential climbing in, but I want to offer that for him. And even times he'll say, I don't like this. Why am I going out here again? And I'm like, well, you want to play video games right now. And I'm just trying to give you time outside at the least. Right. Like, yeah. And I feel conflicted because it's like it takes a lot and it hurts sometimes. Um, and it's frustrating to introduce them to those things and question, why do I do it? But it seems important to me because I don't want that sep- that uh, that separation. I go and climb on my own, but I want that to be a way that we can bond if if he wants to take the reins. Um, sure. did, so as a segue, did Dallas um, ever take his kids out that you know of? Yeah, he did. Um, he took his kids out climbing and I think, um, I don't remember like what he said about that exactly, but I, I think that his kids just didn't, you know, dive into it and love it. I I think that they may have enjoyed it enough to, to do it more than once for sure. But, um, I don't know. I, I, seem to recall his younger son, Neil, uh, liked it possibly more than, um, than his brother and sister, but, um, still, you know, it wasn't a passion for them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that's just, definitely tried. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that I wonder too, is like, you know, if he doesn't like to do those things or even be outside, like, Oh, I like different things. And you just accept that and learn how to deal with that, you know? Yeah. Well, Neil was definitely super athletic. I mean, I, I know he was a football star and um, I, I wonder how much of it was, you know, was Dallas worried about climbing being too dangerous for his kids? Um, I recall him mentioning something about that. Um, you know, maybe there was some rock fall one time he took one of his kids out or something like that. I, I remember some um, event, some kind of, scary kind of, you know, dangerous type event thing when he took his kids out climbing once. And I think that may have not only affected, um, his kids, but I think it affected Dallas a lot. Mm -hmm. So, so he may have chosen to kind of steer away from, from having his kids become the same kind of climber he was because he knew it's dangerous, you know, Interesting. from what you've learned from Dallas, um, and while you were while you were initially climbing right with Dallas in the first few years, um, what was your risk assessment like and and how would you compare your risk assessment at the time to his? Were you like astonished by the risks that he would take, 
or um, did you feel like he was pretty measured? I never felt unsafe with Dallas. Um, you know, when I was learning and climbing with him in the first few years, um, I totally trusted his judgment and he was, he was way more confident on that kind of Alpine terrain than I was, you know, the, the, you know, ironically the same kind of terrain that he actually ended up falling and dying from the, the loose fourth class type terrain that's so common in the North Cascades. Um, I would often be the one to be like, Hey Dallas, you know, can we please rope up for this? Whereas he felt completely comfortable being unroped. Um, so I trusted his judgment there. The one part, um, of, of rock climbing where I later on, especially kind of thought, wow, you know, he could use a little work here was, uh, was in his protection placement often, even his anchors, like, um, he would place decent enough anchors, but I think he was so used to nobody falling ever, you know, when you're in this Alpine terrain, I think he had that mentality of, of, you know, you, you, you don't fall when you're climbing in the mountains. Um, some of his anchors, I was like, huh, Dallas, you know, why didn't you put this cam, you know, this bomber cam right there where you slung this loose block, you know? And I mean, eventually I kind of learned like, oh yeah, he doesn't actually really know how to place cams very well. Um, you know, whenever we'd climb and and I would do any of the leading, I'd I'd bring a a set of cams along with all the nuts and stuff and he just wouldn't place them. And and he never told me he didn't really know how to place them very well. Um, you know, I learned this the kind of the hard way, almost the hard way when uh, we were climbing the Peshastin Pinnacles one time. It was our plan B when the mountains were socked in. And uh, we were doing this two pitch 5.8 and I was leading the second pitch on this 5.8 this and a, a foothold broke that I was standing on and I slipped. He was below me at the belay. Um, a cam I had placed behind this loose flake that I, I knew wasn't solid, but it was all I got. Mm-hmm. It broke the rock. And so, Ooh. so I fell all the way onto the belay and we were, he, he was about 40, 50 feet off the ground at this belay in this little cave. And I fell past him. I factor two onto the anchor basically. Oh. And, um, and I got really scraped up, but I, you know, not seriously injured, but I took a long slab fall. He caught me and eventually I, I kind of got myself together and I climbed back up to the belay. Um, clearly just, we were going to bail. And, uh, I look at his anchor and he's sitting down in this little cave and he was attached to one nut. <laughs> he had this. We had this rack with at least a single set of cams, maybe doubles in a couple sizes. And there was this perfect parallel crack where he could have plugged like a bomber anchor with cams. He placed one nut. And when I fell and he, um, you know, his weight got pulled onto the anchor, the nut, he told me later, actually slid in the crack a little bit before it caught again. And so... I mean, in that situation, we were one nut away from both falling, you know, 50 feet to the ground. And, uh, you know, if, if not death, it certainly would have been major catastrophe. And that's, um, that's certainly the moment where I was like, holy shit, I need to teach Dallas how to place cams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what was it like um, when you first started climbing with Dallas? 
to place protection and stuff. Uh, I'm not very familiar. Was it like there weren't were there any cams around that time? Yes. Yep. Cams are around. Um, still in the mountains, we didn't carry too many of them just because they're a lot heavier than nuts um, and slings and things. And and certainly they're not always the best piece. But um, but yeah, we had a mix, a set of cams, a bunch of nuts, a bunch of slings, that kind of thing. And did they um, still like, so for like clothing wise, was it a lot different? Was there like more old school clothing? Well, for Dallas and Mark, there was, they would always wear these, these uh, wool knickers. <laughs> it was awesome. It, we're in the nineties here. Okay. Like people are using at the time, I think it was shoulder, you know, this kind of new, you know, soft shell material coming out and, um, you know, people would be wearing pants and people would be wearing like fleece tops. These guys, excuse me, these guys had their wool knickers, their knee high wool socks, their huge ass leather boots and, and like a wool, like flannel type wool shirt. Um, it was, it was hilarious. I mean, it, it looked like they were straight out of like, you know, 50 classic climbs in North America and, uh, you know, it was great. Um, and, and they swore by it. It was like, Hey, this, this stuff works super well. Um, we're going to, we're going to keep using it. And yeah. Hey, good for you. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> That's rad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did Dallas influence you as a climber? Wow. Well, um, in, in many ways, really, I mean, I, we started climbing during that, that really, uh, I was like a sponge when I was 17, 18, 19. Um, you know, he, gosh, I mean, as a climber, he really steered me toward mountains. He got me really excited about standing on summits. Um, gosh, he, he helped me really appreciate by virtue of just being in Washington. You know, he maybe, uh, helped me uh, appreciate the whole package, the, uh, the approach, the bivy, you know, the climb was one part of it, but it was the descent also. And just everything, it wasn't just about this singular goal of let's summit. It was often about that, you know, in our minds is like, yeah, we want to summit. But, but I feel like uh, somehow he passed on this appreciation of, of the whole package. Um, and uh, gosh, it's, it's hard to summarize. I mean, just so much. How did um how did it carry over to inspiring you to become a writer? Like how did that connection between writing and Dallas form? Well, so that formed when um as I mentioned earlier, you know, he wrote for this article, uh this uh newspaper rather um not actually not even newspaper. He wrote for this it was a magazine, but it looked like a newspaper. It was this, mm. you know, black and white thing called Pack and Paddle. And and the first articles that I ever wrote that were published were in Pack and Paddle and they were either co-authored with Dallas or Dallas had suggested, Hey, Chris, why don't you write about this trip that we just did to Idaho or to the Rockies or to Colorado, wherever. Um, and so he kind of nudged me to, to submit articles to this, um, magazine and, and let's be honest, they, they didn't pay and they would publish pretty much anything. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was almost guaranteed to get published. And I thought that was cool. It was like, Hey, look at that. And you know, we had uh, like, you know, cover pieces, we had our photos in there and, 
And, you know, I, he got some satisfaction out of that. And, and I, I got a ton of satisfaction out of that. I thought it was so cool. And so, um, over time, you know, at Dallas and I ended up doing some first ascents and I would write up, write up the first ascents for the American Alpine journal. Um, and that just kind of got the ball rolling for me to start, um, freelancing for things like climbing and, and rock and ice and eventually Alpinist and, and a newspaper in Boulder, Colorado that I work for still. And yeah, so he kind of nudged me along in that direction. He was a very, um, diligent journal writer. Um, he always wrote notes on his peaks. Um, I remember just watching him all the time. He'd have his little pencil and notebook in the mountains and he'd write all of the stats, you know, what time we started, what time, what time we got on the route, what time we summited, you know, all sorts of little notes uh, about it. And I, at first I thought that was kind of strange, but, but it also helped me realize that, wow, he, this is his way of appreciating the process. It's his way of appreciating the day and remembering it. And later he would often write about these things more at length in his journal at home or, um, or in an article. And, and so I started picking up that habit too of like wow. just bringing a little pen and paper with me and I'd write down all these notes. And to this day, you know, my climbing partners kind of know me as the guy who's definitely going to, I will have written something down about whatever climb we just did. And uh, that's straight from Dallas. Is there any advice that you have for anyone um, who likes, who would like to write like in those scenarios? Like are there specific journals that you look for? Do they have waterproof journals? Um, there are waterproof journals actually. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is now it's like, now everybody's going to have their iPhone with them and they'll yeah, just keep taking their notes on their iPhone. But, but I, I personally still prefer just to have like a little, like a Moleskine notebook. There's these tiny little durable notebooks and a, and a mechanical pencil I like to have. And just, yeah, that's what I still like. But, um, it's funny. I'm, I'm feeling old fashioned now since everybody else is writing notes on their phones. I'm getting like, I'm trying not to be like pretentious and hipstery, but like, I really <laughs> like having the notebook and my trouble is, is I'll bring notebooks and sometimes I'll mess up or like, if it's in contact with the water bladder and like <laughs> yeah. it gets, it gets wrecked or like, I'll try to foot, I got a jacket now that's like big enough where I can zip a whole notebook in there. And nice. like, yeah, I, I used to write a lot of poetry when I was little and then, or not when I was in like high school and middle school and stuff. And then I tried to do it more, you know, spoken words. And it was just, it wasn't like, like Kerouac kind of stuff. Like I like that style. It, yeah. The slams and stuff that I were going to were more about like inequality and stuff. And it was really hard for me to like, to connect with that. Cause that's okay. not where I was coming from, you know? Yeah. Um, but then I fell in love with, you know, like uh, Kerouac and then Philip Whalen and, and Gary Snyder um, yeah. as like conservationists and, and writers and poets yeah. for Philip and, and Gary. Um, and it's kind of pulled me in that direction and finding out how to more incorporate my writing nice. in the mountains. Like it's, it's really encouraged me to just fall in love with writing all over again. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. And so before meeting Dallas, did you have the intention of, of becoming a, a writer or was that an interest of yours? It, writing was always an interest of mine. I started writing um, a pretty thorough journal, like even as a as a kid. Um, and, you know, for me, it was a way of kind of coping with life at home, um, which, it, you know, I'm a child of an alcoholic. My, my mom has a drinking problem and it was um, 
a stressor on me in ways that I didn't understand at the time, but I could express through writing. Um, that was my little safe place where I could, I could be vulnerable. I could, I could say what I want without judgment. And, um, so I started writing pretty young and, and I, I wrote extensively. Um, I didn't really think of it as a career so much, uh, or a possible career. Um, and Dallas definitely helped me think of it that way, um, to some extent, but yeah, I, I had always been writing, but he's really the one who got me published and who helped me like, hey, why not submit this? You know, let's do this. Um, whereas I just would have tended to just keep to myself and write in my journals, you know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. D- Dallas tend to push you just in like all aspects of the life that you or all aspects of your life that he knew of you. Like I noticed in my life, there's people who like, yeah, let's go do that. And then like, there's a lot of, a lot of people in my life though, where they have to be, someone has to go do that first or someone has to mention it and they'll go along with it. And then talking to like, I think talking to Mark, um, and Scott, he yeah. would Dallas be the stoker be like, Hey, I got all these trips. Like yeah. you want to come with, and he would be open to suggestion, but usually it's just like, yeah. And everyone's, you know, stoked for the trip. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he was definitely the instigator. Certainly yeah. for the the trips, um, as I mentioned earlier, he would he would handwrite lists of potential objectives and ask me what I was interested in. And I mean, he would even go so far as to be like, three months in advance, you know, I'm available this weekend and this weekend. I'm available this Sunday and then the next Saturday. You know, I mean, yeah. So like, he definitely pushed me toward, hey, let's go climb. Let's plan on it. And this is where we'll meet at what time. But yeah, he also, he pushed me in writing. He pushed me in terms of um, setting goals in the mountains. And um, he also pushed me as a Christian in a way. I mean, you know, he, I, I was one of few, if, if any other climbing partners of his that were Christian and so he and I had a special bond over that as well. Like, and, and I feel like he, um, he, he and I would have conversations about what, it, you know, what does it take to be a Christian? What does that mean? What kind of responsibilities does that carry? And we would try to keep each other accountable for, you know, being good people, uh, you know, as, as in as so far as we understood what that meant. And, and, uh, even beyond the religion aspect of that, I just feel like he was, he was at heart a, a very good person. And I think he really encouraged me in his way to be a, a good and caring person. And he certainly led by example in terms of, of things like how devoted he was to his coaching and to his job teaching and to Mount Erie and to holding these races and events and, um, it just, it, he expressed this passion in the way he lived that I just took as an example. It's like, wow, this is the kind of thing I want to be doing, you know? And yeah, so he pushed me in a lot of ways and, and often by example. Yeah. And, and digging into more in those, like those religious aspects where they're like very specific ways of like looking at, uh, um, how to deal with with like your personal life or how to deal with your community that really struck you. Cause like, I'm, I'm not a religious person. Right. But like the things that you could learn through religion 
um, applied generally seem to be really valuable, just like uh, philosophy and like stoicism, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, Dallas told me that he prayed for me often, especially um, as he knew I admitted to him like, hey, in, this is later in college, early 20s. I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my faith, basically. And, and it, was, uh, it was extremely difficult for me to admit that to Dallas because I, we had this bond and um, we had this understanding and we cared about each other as Christians. You know, so to admit, hey, I'm not sure I believe this anymore was, was a difficult step for me. But, but even then, you know, he was like very accepting uh, he, he was understanding beyond what I could even imagine he would be. Um, and he, you know, he just told me I'm praying for you. And, um, you know, that was kind of his way of just, of, of being there and of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he was accepting you for, yeah, where it's at, right. He was accepting me where I was at. And, and that was something I didn't even necessarily expect from him. I mean, not because of only because of my own fears, you know, yeah. I was afraid to, to tell that to him, but eventually I had to. And, and he was You're, very tender and, and caring with that. Yeah. Yeah. Your imagination kind of got carried away, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I was losing the, the rock of my life, you know, this, this belief in religion, this belief in an afterlife, this, this direction in life. Um, and, and then to admit it to Dallas, I'd, what if I lost, my my mentor you know oh wow yeah and the fact that he's still there for you yes i mean unflinching you know just totally there so i i appreciate that more than anything okay i'm here <laughs> your son's cute thank you i appreciate it and it's it's impressive to me because like he seems to be once again spend a lot of time you know thinking about how he impacts the people around him or how he impacted the people around him and like what community meant to him right and in those values like he didn't often seem quick to judge and he often seemed very open-minded which is surprising because i often find myself in moments of being closed-minded and being quick to judge uh, and like he's if i were i would imagine if i were to have met him he'd be one of the people that i'd meet who are religious that make me realize how ignorant i am for assuming that someone is who is religious it will proselytize right? I, like i meet those people and i'm like wow you're such a cool person and i'm like reminded that i'm being ignorant in the reverse right we're assuming that just because you're religious like you're not cool or like you know, you're laying like I remember that when I was a kid, right? And like he sounds everything but Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he definitely um respected the fact that most of his climbing partners did not believe in God. And I think he um prayed for all of them. He prayed for Mark, he prayed for for his other partners who were not openly Christian, you know, and um but but yeah, he wasn't overbearing. Um you know, he I don't want to make Dallas sound like like he was perfect either. I mean, Dallas had a lot of flaws just like we all do, but, um, but for me in my life, I mean, he's, he, he was just such an important and positive impact 
And I think he was a positive impact on most people's lives that he knew, you know. And it's wild because, like, just from the conversations that I've had so far, in very different ways, and also the same way. Like, you have Jason where, you know, he learned a lot of Dallas, it seems like, in relation to, like, fatherhood, you know, what being a father is, and then also, like, caring for people and how you were to balance that time because Dallas did a good job balancing it and also struggled with it in the same token, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you even see, like, Mark, where Mark comes up as, like, someone who's about a similar age as Dallas and, you know, having kids around the same time and just being out there, meeting each other on, the, like, on a very level surface, right? Like yeah, yeah. Not looking down or up in any moment um, in terms of seniority or, or age or authority or whatever that may be. And then, like, even Scott coming in to meet Dallas when Dallas is 25 years into climbing and then flash forward 25 years later, and here I am, probably with as much experience as Scott at the time, yeah. talking to Scott in Dallas's shoes in that sense, where someone who has like a lot of knowledge on climbing is now talking to someone who's like, you know, has been getting into climbing and is gaining that knowledge and is interested and is yeah. telling his old mentor. And like all of it's just like all these different angles. And like Jason's interesting because he talked about like, you know, uh, climbing with Dallas and actually becoming more reserved because of seeing like how he used his Dallas's risk tolerance and Scott leaned more the other way where Scott's like, you know, <laughs> like I wasn't, I was a little more afraid than I guess I could have, or I could have been a little more brave and he learned to be more brave and push himself, you know? Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. And it's, it's so wild, such a complex person, but aren't we all? Yeah. Yeah. When, what's, <laughs> What's really crazy for me now is I'm 45 years old now, and in just seven short years, I'm going to be as old as Dallas was when we first met. And when we first met, I remember thinking, yeah, this guy's <laughs> freaking ancient. I mean, he's like tall and skinny with his, with his you know, gray hair and his yellow VW bus. Like, he's old. And that's seven years. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, that's not that far off. So it's, yeah, it's kind of the perspective is changing fast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to go climbing in seven years. <laughs> I'll <laughs> up. Yeah, I'm this year. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> with like, with where you're at now and, and like the influence that you had with Dallas and just also your, your climbing adventures, um, it seems like you spend a lot of your time based around rock climbing. Do I have that right? That's right. Yeah. So, so that obsessions with you, with you pretty, pretty deeply. Right. Cause like I talked to, you know, who Brooks Middleton is right. Yeah. 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 And, and I can't, I don't, he's a little different than me because like he really likes architecture and I like to climb more and yeah. like, I like lean that other way. Um, and I'm willing to make compromises. Like I like doing graphic design and I work towards that so I can have more, you know, flexibility and I'd rather like live cheaply and like, so I can go and climb and, and hang with my son and stuff. But I see people draw different boundaries. Um, but then I look at you and it seems like you, you get a lot of, you have a lot of freedom of uh, travel in your life. And it seems like you built your life around climbing. Is that like a correct assumption? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fair. Yeah. And, uh, and do you just mainly, are you, do you write for your career? Are you a writer? Sorry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, no, it's good. Good question. Yeah, I'm a writer. I um, I've been working for uh, the Boulder Daily Camera since 2007. I have a climbing column that I publish with them every couple of weeks. Um, freelance um, for other publications uh, like the magazines and stuff. I I recently co-authored a, a guidebook to Boulder Canyon and um, in Boulder, Colorado. And right now I'm working on. Um, a memoir, uh, not mine, but uh, I'm working with a friend of mine who's writing her memoir. We're kind of co-authoring this book. So, yeah, so it's been good. I mean, I've been writing a bunch and it's kind of ramping up and, and uh, it's been cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, is there a, does writing and rock climbing ever conflict with one another? It does. I mean, the thing is like, insofar as jobs go, it's, pretty darn conducive to rock climbing. I mean, yeah. I don't have to be anywhere. All of my writing is done remotely. So, so even though I say yes, like, yes, it does get in the way sometimes. It's so minimal that it's, it's very tolerable. Um, but yeah, certainly there's, there's stories, especially when I'm up against a, an important deadline. Um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta get the job done and I want it done well because my name's on it. And so I naturally will sacrifice um, workouts or going cloud climbing outside or whatever. But but in terms of jobs, like I've got a pretty darn easy uh, as far as the scheduling goes for rock climbing. <laughs> so I'm I, I feel really fortunate. Yeah. Did you did you find yourself lucky in being in this position, or was it very thought out? Like not that you're going to be a writer because that's right. It's a pretty fortunate thing, um, but. Was sure. the schedule something that you really desired? The schedule is something I, I totally desired. Yeah. Um, but I definitely, I do find myself lucky. Yeah. Cause, um, I don't make a hundred percent of my income through writing. A lot of my income actually comes from, um, family stuff. My dad is a real estate guy and he's got a lot of properties. And, um, so I've had some income from, from some properties that I've inherited. So, that's actually uh, a huge part of my income, which that's what I feel super lucky for. Um, the writing that has allowed me to pursue writing um, to the extent that I have, and it's allowed me to become, you know, just kind of keep getting better at it and become a little more successful at it. So, so yeah, I do consider myself extremely lucky. That's really helpful um, because, you know, from the outside looking in, there's like, there's a ton of different question marks for how you get to somewhere with like, you know, with writing, right? Like, uh, podcasting is a similar thing too, because you can't just like follow a, um, you can't follow a set of instructions and then acquire said audience or, you know, follow right. a set of instructions and get publication. Right. Like, right. um, your, your book being on the bestseller list, you can't really like you do your best to write the best book, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be a bestseller. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so like, it's, it's very helpful for me and I hope it is for people, you know, listening, um, who are pursuing things that are very ambiguous to get to, to, for it to pay some of your bills at least. Um, yeah. because yeah. I like to find different ways, um, that push me to write and motivate me. It's very engaging challenges, yeah. um, but not try to put myself where I depend on it, you know, and finding like different entrepreneurial things or like graphic design is pretty easy because, it's just a service that I can provide for people, you know, and a lot of people need that and I could put it out there, but it gives me the flexibility for the climbing and the writing and yeah, you know, uh, pushing these lateral goals that I have, you know? Yeah. And that's what 
I think is really cool about Dallas because like Fred Becky was interesting in the sense that he is hyper obsessed over like mountaineering, you know, and, and all of that, that came from that. Right. And learning about him is like an enigma in that sense. Um, But Dallas like had all of these different, you know, things that he balanced and he didn't do them subpar. Right. He did them quality. It seems. And like, even down to putting on that, um, some, a running event that was a race up Mount Erie from my understanding. Like, yeah, that sounds so epic. Yeah. Yeah. And he did that for many years, many years. Do you know of any of his history as like a runner? Um, Because you mentioned he was in ultra marathons. I've tried asking local runners and I haven't really got much. Um, I don't know a ton of specifics. I do know that there was a period of six or seven or eight years where he actually prioritized running far above climbing, um, which, as I mentioned earlier, that like that's when his peak totals were down for the year. But but yeah, I mean, he got really into running. He was a very successful marathon runner. He ran fast times consistently. Um, but um, I couldn't tell you which years those were. I believe it was in like late 70s into the mid 80s, but I'm not certain of that. Um, and yeah, I do know it was just, it was more important to him. Running was more important to him than climbing for that short relatively short period of time in his life. Yeah. But he always carried the running with him. I mean, certainly he was always fit when we were hiking into the mountains, even when he was in his mid to late sixties. Um, and he would always do his Mount Erie run and he, he just ran often anyway. I mean, he was kind of, he was definitely, um, I think he nowadays would have been prescribed, um, you know, something, (laughs) So he would have been with, with ADD or ADHD for sure. I mean, he, he couldn't sit still, you know, even on rest days between wow. big climbs, you know, he, he would just sit there and vibrate. Like he <laughs> had to be doing something. And so running was his other thing. And whether he did it on his own or with his um, track students, um, that was important to him. So even as climbing took over again in his life, running was always there. I feel conflicted at times too, because trying to do get ready for ultra ultra runs and rock climbing, and then it's just hard to balance all that. And rock climbing is way more fun. (laughs) (laughs) It is more fun. It's true. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's my thing that I wrestled with this year is I was race preparing for like uh, a two fifty milers. And in my training, I came to the conclusion that if, uh, running makes me resent like, or running more, the amount that I need to makes me resent running. The best training plan is to go rock climbing. And (laughs) I didn't do that for the first one. And I dropped out. I did do that for the second one and climbed a lot and I succeeded and it was very fun. So it's going to be my approach, climb a lot and run sometimes. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Did, did you, uh, did you set any routes with Dallas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we did some new routes. Um, my first first ascent was the north face of Mount Kent, right above I ninety near Snoqualmie Pass. In um, I think that was nineteen ninety three. Um, we did a bunch of kind of smaller peaks um, in the Cascades. We did new routes up small peaks. Um, we did some new routes together at Mount Erie routes as well as Boulder Problems. 
um, which is funny because to think of Dallas as a boulderer is, is funny. He, he didn't boulder that much only when he was totally desperate. Uh, <laughs> no partner, maybe it was raining, he was by himself, you know. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of, um, of others. But yeah, we did, we did a number of first ascents together that were really meaningful to me because um, he knew all the nicks and crannies of the Cascades and he, he had lines picked out, you know. So, wow. yeah. Did he favor any particular like kinds of routes, like very esoteric or um, gnarly routes? Like, did he have preferences? Not necessarily. Um, I, I think he actually preferred the routes that were doable in a day. He, he definitely preferred that for winter climbing, but he also, I think, uh, you know, he didn't care as much about these like, you know, enormous faces, say, in the Canadian Rockies, but he would want to do the interesting, attractive peaks that you could do the climb in a day, even if it was like from a hut that you had to hike into or something. But um, he, he didn't necessarily want to bivy en route, things like that. But but yeah, I mean, he was interested whether it was snow, rock, ice, didn't really matter. Oh, wow. Just in it to, to enjoy the, the trip up and the trip down. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And it, in closing, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about Dallas? Um, gosh, I think you did a really good job of, uh, of kind of covering a lot of things. Um, and of course, there's no way to sum up someone in, in a single podcast, but yeah. Um, um, I guess I'd just like to emphasize that he really, uh, had a huge impact on me and I know he had a huge impact on so many people that he climbed with. And I think it's largely due to his passion for climbing and his obvious passion for getting people together. And, uh, I would go so far as to say that, that he really loved his, his people. He loved his partners um, I'm certain he loved his students at school and, and the kids that he coached track with. Um, I, I know for sure he loved his family. Um, he, yeah. And he was a loving person without, without really ever using those words. You know, I, I don't, I'm not sure he ever told me he loved me, but I know that he did. And I think everybody who knew Dallas felt the same way. Wow. That's really special. In yeah. Yeah. Place. Like, I don't know really powerful because right, like the frequency in which you use something, it diminishes the power. And I don't want to say not using it at all. It makes it really powerful. Right? Right, right, right. But going through these in really intense experiences and not using it at all makes it really powerful. Like, yeah. Yeah. Being for you there. Have you ever had a moment where you were like racked out of your brain and you needed him? Like, cause I've been really scared up there. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, I remember um, the first peak I ever climbed in the Canadian Rockies was with Dallas. We climbed the East Ridge of Storm Mountain, which um, it was my intro to the entirely different scale that the Canadian Rockies on is on versus even the Cascades, which are, are pretty big mountains. Um, the Canadian Rockies are, are a magnitude larger. And so the the guidebook at the time too was was selected climbs in the cascades but it was commonly referred to as selected sandbags <laughs> uh, rockies rather and um anyway we were doing this route that was rated five six mostly scrambling but um 
you know, what the description didn't say was how much snow and ice there was in between all the loose rock. And, um, it was just sketchy terrain and right near the top of this East Ridge of storm peak, we, um, you know, there was a pitch, like I was pretty much kind of next up to lead this next section, but I was absolutely gripped. Um, I remember to the point of tears, I, I, uh, I had tears running down my face when I looked up and thought, Oh my God, I have to lead this. I'm like, I'm, I'm tired. This is more than I signed up for. I really didn't know it was going to be like this. And without a word, Dallas took the rack and just started going up. Um, you know, no judgment, no speech, no nothing. It was just like, he saw what had to be done and he took over. And, um, that was, you know, I, I, I was just so deeply thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. God, it sounds so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate this so much, Chris. Thank you. Well, man, it's great. Great talking. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to check out um, any more of the Dallas Cloakie series, you can go over to Becoming Human podcast forward slash Dallas. Um, if you haven't checked out parts one through three yet, you can go to Becoming Human podcast forward slash Dallas to check out some more. Um, and if you like the show, please rate review on Google play iTunes, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts and share it with a friend. I hope y'all are doing all right during this heavy time with the coronavirus here in March of 2020. Man, I know it can be hard on all of us. So I figured I'd play you out with some really upbeat music called The Road I Roam by Christoph Crane. Stay healthy out there, friend. Bye. Taught me how to not take life for granted My brother taught me how to question the why and the how My lover Sherry taught me how to stay connected Michael Larson, he taught me how to understand potential Tony Chavez, he taught me self-control My man Lumpy taught me how to serve others when they're in need And CJ, he taught me how to let it go oh. Road I roam is one less traveled If it wasn't for the people I know I'd be kicking gravel With a hole in my sock all alone Josh and Trent, they taught me about the flow. Joe Horton, he taught me how to go beyond my boundaries and interact with the people I don't know. My friend Eason, he taught me how to do it all myself. G.O.B., he showed me how to keep a beat. His brother Casey taught me how to travel around the globe. And Mike Lewis taught me how to play it sweet. J.T., he taught me about the space. Alexi taught me how to be brave. 
My little niece Kelly shows me my imagination every time we go and sit down to paint. James Penfield taught me how to paint. Pat Adams, he taught me how to sing. My grandpa Vic taught me how to take a vow. My grandma B, she taught me everything. The road I roam is one less traveled. If it wasn't for the people I know, I'd be kicking gravel with a hole in my sock. To let you know that lately I've been trying to stay Within the frame of what I'm offered when I play When attempting to explain something I can't wrap my brain around Just know that it has no bearing on whether or not You played a crucial role in the shape that I became And the chains that I've become Or how these changes we're all going through Are most likely attached to the exact same one From the day we came to our senses And cross paths right up to this very special moment in time Just know that you did make a difference in my life And in my life I pray that I may do the same sometime But either way it's all a passing pace Without a cause A train without tracks A brain without flaws A face without a grin And a spirit in a body Changing back into the shape that it originally was again The road I roam is one less traveled If it wasn't for the people I know I'd be I'm